I went to Ayodhya. And as soon as I stepped off the train, I'd come from, um, from Varanasi, I was back in another time. When this happens to me, I just allow the process to unfold. So I was seeing things and hearing things. I was back in another time. And then a few months later, and I sat with it, and I, I wrote down what I saw and heard. And then I, I, then I, I went, took a pilgrimage to Vaishnadevi in Jammu, which is one of the most powerful of the Devi shrines. Mm-hmm. And um, in Jammu, uh, I had just completed a yatra mm-hmm. from Ladakh to Srinagar to Jammu. There was a Raghunath temple. This one was deserted. There wasn't anybody there. And I went in there. And as I bowed before the image of Ramasita, a very vivid memory came back to me. I saw myself as a servant in Sita's household with great, great love for Janak, who I called Janak Baba. And then I checked myself because I do have that questioning mind. And I said, Dean, really? You think you were a servant in Sita's household? (laughs) Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhag Shukla talks with author and interfaith activist Dina Miriam about her journey into Hinduism and her experiences traveling in India where she caught glimpses of her past lives, including one living in a palace at Ayodhya. Be aware at points in this one there's some background noise that bleeds into the recording. But rather than go back and try to recreate the interview, which never quite works out as well, we're rolling with it. So without further ado, here's Suhag and Dina. We're joined by Dina Merriam. I've known Dina for years as so many people in our day and age know one another, only through email. I sought counsel from her here and there because of her expertise in public relations. Dina is a partner at Rudder Finn, a global communications firm based in Manhattan. Finally, in November of 2018, we met in person to work on the launch of the Hindu American Foundation's project, I Am Hindu American. I felt an immediate, deep connection with her and found a kindred spirit in the world of Hindu advocacy. In addition to her work in media and branding, Dina is the founder and convener of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, a global platform for women religious and spiritual leaders, which engages Hindu and Buddhist leadership more actively on the world stage. She's been a student of Paramahansa Yogananda for over 40 years, at least in this lifetime, and a practitioner of Kriya Yoga Meditation. She's also the author of two books, which led to a couple of late nights for me because I just couldn't put them down. So you've written two books, which uh, touch upon Hindu themes and topics, and I'm looking forward to getting into those. But before we talk about that, let's just talk about your own journey to Dharma. I grew up in a secular Jewish family, so uh, without any religious background, uh, my family was dedicated to the arts, very involved in the art world. But since since I was a young girl, I always had a spiritual yearning, mm-hmm. um, but but nowhere to no way to, to practice anything. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got to college, my first year, somebody handed me Autobiography of a Yogi by my guru Paramahansa Yogananda, and I recognized him right away as my guru and read the book and wanted to learn meditation and became a very serious meditation practitioner. But also recognized um, how comfortable I was in the, in the Hindu world. Um, I, I, loved, I loved all the deities, Krishna, Ram in particular. Um, I was, became a great devotee of Ram in my early 20s. Hmm. Um, had never been, I didn't go to India because I, I got married in college and then had um, 
two sons very quickly. So while all my friends were going off to India, finding their gurus, my guru had already left the body. And here I was, um, you know, in, in New York, mother of two, two babies, really. So I had, to, I had to really experience on my own. And it was through meditation and it was through study of the Gita. The Gita became, the Bhagavad Gita became my, my companion. I carried it everywhere. I read it every day. It was, I read it again and again and again. And of course, later when I, I started remembering uh, past births, I realized huh, that in my past two births, which had been in the West, I had somehow found my way to the Bhagavad Gita in those lives. Huh. And so the, the Bhagavad Gita was my lifeline, really. Um, to 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 my my Hindu older past because if you read the book you see I've had several lives in India much earlier, um, and so I was a quiet yogi. It was very hard to to in those days for a Westerner to come out as a Hindu. Right. And when when I started, you know, I had to hide it from my family because meditation. They thought I was going to, you know, be, be, become part of a cult. Sure. And so I became a closet meditator. Hmm. I take the phone off the hook for an hour and go meditate. And my mother was would think I was talking to friends. Um, <laughs> when she would come, I, I you know I had pictures of my gurus everywhere. I would take them down, <clears throat> and so not to create any kind of disturbance. And so I'd lived like this for a number of years um, until my kids really got older. I got divorced, and so I was a single mom. Um, and then when they went off to college, this whole world opened to me of doing interfaith work. And when I entered the interfaith world, I realized it was Abrahamic men's world. Mm. There were women mm -hmm. and nobody from the, from the Dharma traditions. And so I had this double struggle of bringing in the voices of women and bringing in the voices of the Dharma tradition. And that's when I began to come out more openly as I'm a Hindu. Okay. Um, and... And it, it was challenging because when I would started to travel extensively and I would go to countries um, like, like I remember a trip to Saudi Arabia. You have to state your religion before when you apply for visa. And I put down Hindu and I landed in Saudi Arabia and the immigration officer looks at me and he says, you're not Hindu. Right. And I said, but I am Hindu. He said, no, right. you're not. And we had this back and forth until uh, finally I was traveling with a male, a male uh, work, co-worker and he was Indian. And he came in, I guess he thought I was the wife or something. He said, she is Hindu, and he let me in. But it was such an uncomfortable feeling. And this happened to me again and again, actually. N not to be able to be accepted right. for what my, my worldview was. Sure. So, so let me ask you this, because I've had this conversation with other people who, and I, and I use the word born into um, very strictly in terms of this lifetime. But for those people who weren't, say, born into a Hindu family, um, this has been not only their struggle with people outside of the community, from within the community as well. Um, what, what, was, what has your interaction been, or even early on, your interaction with the Hindu community? Did you find acceptance there? Yes, I found acceptance. Um, and and I, in many ways, I felt it was a blessing to be born um, at, in, in a white family, non-Indian family, because a lot of the cultural issues I didn't have to deal with, caste didn't mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. just, it wouldn't occur to me to ask anybody. I mean, just, it has no, has no significance to me. Right. Um, and, and there are a lot of the rituals don't have significance to me. What has significance to me is my deep devotion to Sita and Ram. Mm -hmm. deep devotion to Krishna 
And later I came into a relationship with, with Shiva. And um, and the whole worldview um, that 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 Hinduism um, uh, shares, and so that's what had significance to me was the world. And also, of course, one of the initial attractions to me was the Divine Mother, because no in no other religion is she present. Right, she may have at one time been present, but she's been suppressed so much. But there, I found that the the, the Davies. Um, which I recognized I had been seeking in my earlier life, looking for the 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 the, the Devi um, that I couldn't find in the Abrahamic traditions. So that's what appealed to me, and and I found that I, uh, for the most part, was completely accepted by the Indian community, with the exception of going into certain temples, which right. is still a problem. Right, right. Um, you know, and we've my father's best friend um, is a Sai Baba devotee. And, and he has faced similar situations because my father and he go on yatras together. And so he just has made it a point to just sit outside and start his kirtan, <laughs> sitting wherever oh, he yeah. is. Oh, yeah. I'm fine with doing that, too. I feel like I need to go in just to, have, just to be in the presence exactly. of the is enough. And he's had, he's had police officers apologize profusely and, and even go as far as saying, you deserve to go in more than we do and actually escort him in. So, uh, you know, there are those um, beautiful stories of when we do come face to face and actually take the time to get to know each other. Um, that that can unfold. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, remembering um, past births, and and that is kind of the premise of of your first book, uh, My Journey Through Time: A Spiritual Memoir of Life, Death, and Rebirth. Um, it's a deeply personal memoir about very vivid and detailed memories of your past lives. I um, was fascinated and really enjoyed um, reading it, and so. I wanted to ask you, you know, you describe in there your past life experiences ranging from life in um, early 19th century in the American Deep South um, to life in Russia. Um, you also mentioned just earlier that uh, you had come to the Bhagavad Gita, at least in two previous lives. What was the motivation? Uh, well, first, how did these memories start coming about and what was the motivation behind writing them down? The the memories um, I, I've always had a, a, a partially open curtain, and so you know when I was um, younger I would get fleeting images, but just just fleeting suggestions uh, in my twenties, and it, it 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 became more vivid as I came became older. Um, and when I bought my house, I was thirty years old, moved into the house. I began to have flashes and dreams of another house. Hmm. Um, and they haunted me because the same dream would kind of be in this house and, and I would feel a longing and a sadness and I'd wake up and it was like, oh, I was at that house again. That was my house. I had um, taken birth um, around the turn of the century in Russia and uh, had to flee the country during the revolution. And that was the house, my country house, the Dhaka, that I was dreaming about. Hmm. And then I began to uh, meet different people who would awaken memories. Uh, and at first I was, I was, you know, I, I, in my I was married to a psychiatrist. Okay. And so I was very cautious about my, what I was seeing. Right. So I actually checked myself out. I actually got on a plane and went to the place that I had seen, um, that where I had died. And I found the street that I had seen. And then I went to Russia to look for the place. So I actually didn't just take these visions. And most of it came to me in meditation, but it would come to me. I could be driving a car and suddenly find myself in the middle of a conversation 
from hundreds of years ago. And so it was, and I was, as I said, I was a single mom raising teenage sons, holding a job. And I would say to myself, Dina, you're holding a job. You're very grounded. You're raising your kids. You've not gone off into the deep end. Right. But it was, um, it was very emotionally taxing, which is why I don't recommend people to go in search of this. Mm-hmm. If it comes to you naturally, it came to me, well, what can one do, right? Um, but it was very emotionally because I had to relive all these experiences. Right. The beauty of it was that I got to remember these teachers from the past. Mm-hmm. And I saw that in every life, there was some guide to take me back to my spiritual self my spiritual life. And and that was very comforting. Um, And then I also, it helped me completely overcome the fear of death, realizing that I've died so many times before. And I remembered my last death and I remembered the the state in between, which was more of a home than this world is a home. So so it was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences that I've had was remembering these past lives. Uh, And then I also got to see patterns and why I was doing what I was doing. Uh, uh, Interfaith work that had begun much earlier, Uh, my struggle to find my voice as a woman that had been a consistent theme with me over many lives. Um, And so it was, it was, um, and I I started to write these down just to look at my own patterns and to see what I could learn. A friend of mine who was a writer approached me one day and said, Dina, I know you're writing a book. I said, well, I've just finished. She said, can I read it? And she was also from a secular Jewish background, but she just started a TM and she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she was going through a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. She said to me, I really want to read it. And so I said, okay, but it's about, it's about past lives, rebirth. And so she insisted on reading it and it helped her so much in the last months of her life uh, because it helped her get over the fear of death. And she said to me, Dina, you have to publish this. This is going to help a lot of people. And so I decided then to share it with some of my spiritual friends who then came back to me and said, Dina, you can't put your name to this. Ah, I was going to ask you about this. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? This is my life. Yeah, but you have a position in the world. You want an interfaith group and you, you know, your family. Of course, my family still doesn't know about the book. And she said, you you can't expose yourself like that. And two of my friends said that. And so I said, look, either I'm going to publish it or not. I'm not going to put, you know, I, I toyed around with the idea of just signing it as D. And then I said, come on, if you're going to publish it, you're going to publish it. So I put my name to it and I just put it out there. And, and, um, a a colleague, a man that I works with, one of the Christian theologians that I had worked with emailed me and said, Dina, I just got your book. I've got to talk to you about it. And I thought, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. What am I going to say? I you take it as a novel if you want. Right. Called me and he said, um, I've been so moved. He said, you know, and I've been doing research and he said, you've got to read this other book by this, uh, philosophy, um, religion professor at a university and he's from Iowa and Iowa, Ohio. I got the book and it was all this evidence of people past life experiences. Right. I've never, gone into that field of looking at what the research was because to me it was a reality i didn't need to be convinced right but this this christian theologian who wrote the book said that there's so much evidence now it's not a matter of belief 
that that this is just we have to accept this as, as the way life is interesting and so my christian friend mm-hmm. um I had a long conversation with him and he said this has changed the way i look at the world um, and and then i saw polls that said 30 to 40 percent of american christians accept rebirth and i realized that that now is the time to be more, more open about this. So, so I wanted to ask you, I mean, in one sense, you know, you, you write the book, um, you have some friends who are advising you not to publish and, and a friend who found great solace in the book. Um, and then you're, you know, this Christian theologian introduces you to a researcher. Um, I was actually going to ask you, um, about, you know, who your readership is, because amongst Vedanta circles, for instance, um, I know books like um, Psychotherapist, Dr. Brian Weiss's Many Lives, Many Masters has gained um, a tremendous readership and following. And, um, you know, that book is a true case of past life therapy uh, by a psychotherapist and how he's able to help his patient work through past life trauma that's still affecting today is what we would in the Hindu world talk about as vasanas or, you know, past karma and how that um, influences our current life. So is, is that the readership? I mean, did you have a target in mind? I guess if you didn't know about the research, did you know about this particular book? Is that the readership um, that was in mind for you or, or there was a, completely different motivation altogether, or it didn't matter. It, it didn't matter, but I saw this less as a book about reincarnation, because mm-hmm. I think I, I've known about Brian Weiss's book. People have asked me about it, and um, I, I, I know that there's a, a, a lot of work out there. Mm-hmm. For me, it was about um, the workings of karma, cause and effect. That's always mm-hmm. been a great um, desire of mine to understand this universal law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's fundamental um, and it's scientific. And what I got to see in my in the process of remembering these these past births, I got to understand a little bit of how this law works, hmm. how things from the past, and it's not just the immediate past. It could have been things from several hundred years ago. I mean, I can tell you another story um, about about a healing of something that happened. Um, yes. Yeah, um, but that was my interest in trying to trying to bring to the fore this, this, this law that we need to understand because we need to have a long-term understanding of, of under things that come in our life, where they came from, and then how to create our future. Because sure. once you see how the past has created your present, then you understand that you are creating your future. Right. In one of my lives, I record a, uh, a life that took place in Varanasi in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and um, there are a lot of things that happened at that time. But at one moment, there's communal tension, and my husband and I have to leave. And we go on pilgrimage up to Kashmir, which is in this life has played an important role for me, Kashmir. But mm-hmm. um, I had not been thinking about that life. I took my family to India, my two grandsons, uh, uh, a year ago. And my older grandson, who's, who has a very strong connection with Hinduism in, in India, uh, we were in Mumbai, and he came across Shivaji, the warrior Shivaji, okay. and just became fascinated with him, got this big book on him, made me read him. So I read the book, we kind of studied it together. And when we came to the part about Aurangzeb, mm-hmm. plays a big part, such anger arose in me, hmm. such anger. I couldn't contain it. 
my my son had wanted to go to the Janta Caves and we couldn't go. And I said, okay, I'll bring you back. So I started researching. I said to myself, I have to find this man's grave. Hmm. I'm going to go spit on that grave. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my son and my, when I said this out loud, my grandson and my son looked at me like, oh, that's not you. Right, right. <laughs> but I, I, I couldn't contain the anger. It was like anything, any politician today, I don't have that level of anger toward. And so I researched and I found out that he, where he was buried, unmarked grave in a Sufi shrine. I said, well, how am I going to go spit on it? grave in a Sufi shrine and then I right. said, <laughs> and I was determined to do that I was determined I wasn't going to wait till I bring my family I was planning to go back to go to that place and to do this because it was the only way I could deal with this anger yeah. and then I had a dream hmm. as soon as I had this plan in place I had a dream and in the dream I was in a broken down temple Mm-hmm. And somebody approached me and said, there's a Sufi sitting in the corner up, up uh, and, uh, over there. Would you like to meet him? And I said, well, who is it? He told me the name. I said, yeah, I, I know that man. I'll go meet him. And I climbed over the ruins. And in the corner was this poor elderly figure. Uh-huh. And he looked up at me. And I said to myself, oh, my God, that's Aurangzeb. Hmm. And I woke up and my anger was gone. Huh. It was, it was gone. And so to me, um, I really thought about this a lot because there was a, there was a wound in me, mm-hmm. a very deep wound. And I realized that I had left Varanasi after the destruction of the Kashi Vishwanath Temple, okay. which was such a blow, such a blow. It's like hitting at the heart of that community. The Kashi Vishwanath Temple was so old at that time ancient temple in the 17th century. Um, and it was the heart of the, of the city. And it was leveled and destroyed by Rangzeb. And a mosque was built there. And of course, then an, later, another temple was built next to the mosque, which is the temple we have today. But I put so many things together. My first visit to Varanasi in this life, I went to the temple and it was so painful for me, I had to leave. Hmm. And, and so I didn't, how do you heal old wounds right you know it, uh, uh in an earlier life in in india which might have been the 14th or 15th century i also talk about the beginning of the islamic invasions those wounds were still with me in this life right and how do you heal them well the dream helped me heal them because i realized rangzab has got karma's gonna he's got his karma to work through nobody gets off without without uh balancing Right. The bank account, so to speak. You've got to balance it all. <laughs> Absolutely. Whatever harm you do, you have to rectify in some way. Right. And so that's, a, that's the law of the universe that works that through. It's n- nothing I have to do. All I have to do is heal myself. And it was a tremendous relief for me to go through that healing, which, which happened in a dream. That's, that's fascinating. You know, the, the day or the morning of uh, the verdict on the Ram Janmabhumi and the Ayodhya case. I remember, you know, I start my Saturday morning um, playing uh, Hanuman Chalisa, you know, traditional Saturdays of the day um, to honor Hanuman. And, you know, spontaneously, I was born and raised here, but spontaneously my eyes just filled with tears that for all the Hindus who continued to worship at the site in spite of a temple not being there, that they maybe didn't live in their, the bodies that this whole situation started in, um, to see 
um, what I feel was justice that was served. Um, but, but there was kind of an opening for me and, and maybe as a lawyer, um, it took a legal process for that to happen. Um, but what would, what would you see? Because you do do piecework generally. What, what can we do as a, as a, we meaning, you know, Hindu society, whether you are in India or outside of in the diaspora, what can we do to address these traumas? I mean, it's not practical uh, to necessarily, you know, undo um, physical harms that were done. But what can we do as a community um, to address because in some circles, we can't even talk about it. It's oftentimes almost, um, I don't know, I feel like there's an underlying message that, well, if we acknowledge uh, that we were uh, victimized at the hands of uh, an Islamic invader, then we will then turn around and mistreat Muslims in today's day and age. And I don't know that that's necessarily a true. It might be for, for a small group of people, but generally speaking, um, at least in the therapy world, we talk about needing to um, confront uh, past harms in order to heal. So what what mechanisms, if any, have you thought about this issue or, or um, have you seen it in, in other uh, contexts where maybe it could be applied for Hindu-Muslim relations? Well, I, I think it's very important not to deny history. I mean, the occupation was the occupation and that, that has, should not reflect on, on current Muslims because most likely they were not the ones who occupied. Um, they might have been Hindu in a past birth. So it's not to look at individuals. It's right. to look at a historical reality. And in Indian schools, I mean, the history is not even taught. I mean, nothing, there's no pre-Islamic occupation history that's taught. So when did history begin in India? I mean, the first thing is to look at the origins of this culture. <clears throat> I mean, why isn't... Why isn't Ram taught in the schools? In all the schools throughout Thailand, um, the story of Ram is taught. Uh, Cambodia, the story of Ram is taught. And not in India, in the schools. Right. So what is this blockage, um, which I think has been, and it, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not been talked about. And you can't heal unless you talk about it. And it's not about people who are Muslim today, because... Who knows where they were at that time? No, absolutely. You know, so I think that distinction has to be made. And Muslims today shouldn't be defensive of a, of a wrong done, um, a historical wrong. Because, you know, for example, Aurangzeb, he's still uh, considered to be a great ruler by some. But in one year alone, in Udaipur, thousands of temples were destroyed. Hindus were taxed, they were converted, they were killed. I mean, in our consciousness today, in a world where we acknowledge the wrongs of colonialism, mm -hmm. occupation, and oppression, commonly throughout the world we acknowledge these, these wrongs. Well, this was, a, this was a form of colonialism. It was occupation. And a lot of destruction of the indigenous culture took place. And we, we live in a world sympathetic to the destruction of indigenous culture. So why is India a separate category? You know, and it's not, and it's not put in the same category as other cultures that were invaded and, and attempts such as, and it's miraculous that Hinduism survived. I, mean, I think it was the, the um, unbroken tradition of masters 
that um, being in, in reading about Shivaji, I came across his guru, mm-hmm. um, uh, Ramdas, who, who uh, traveled throughout uh, India, the, the occupied India, um, trying to revive uh, Hindu Dharma. And he wrote about an ideal Hindu society. He was a, a, a great master. And so there have always been great masters. And, and of course, some of the Muslim rulers recognized the, the masters, but some of them didn't. Right. You know, Alongside was one of the worst, but there were others too who were like that. So, you know, correcting history is very important, no matter how painful it is. Uh, and, and I think we have, I mean, that's one of the purposes of this dialogue I'm trying to start in March about Hindu Dharma and identities. How do we how do we begin a dialogue in a way that doesn't offend or accuse? Right, right. No, that's, that's not the intention. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and and I'll look forward to um, seeing what unfolds. Um, I'm sure you're bringing together great minds to um, to talk about this. So I touched a little bit about Ram and and. Um, and the temple. So I'd also like to talk about your latest book, The Untold Story of Sita, an empowering tale for our time. You know, the Ramayana has many tellings, um, including some that come from Sita's perspective, and they're oftentimes called Sitayan. Um, so what prompted you to add to this body of works? Well, I went to Ayodhya. <laughs> Three years ago. That can do it. <laughs> I took a pilgrimage to Ayodhya. And as soon as I stepped off the train, I'd come from, um, from Varanasi. I was back in another time. And I, I just, when this happens to me, I just allow the process to unfold. So I was seeing things and hearing things. I was back in another time. And then a few months later, and I sat with it, and I, I wrote down what I saw and heard. And then I, I, then I, I went, took a pilgrimage to Vaishnadevi in Jammu, which is one of the most powerful of the Devi shrines. Mm-hmm. And um, in Jammu, uh, I had just completed a yatra mm-hmm. from Ladakh to Srinagar to Jammu. There is a Raghunath temple. There aren't many Raghunath temples. This one was deserted. There wasn't anybody there. And I went in there, and as I bowed before the image of Ram and Sita, a very vivid memory came back to me. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing the book, and and I saw myself as a servant in Sita's household, mm-hmm. with great great love for ja- Janak, who I called Janak Baba. And then I ch- checked myself because I do have that questioning mind, and I said, Dean, really, you think you were a servant in Sita's household?" <laughs> and then I said, "You know, I'm getting such information." Maybe I'm channeling that servant. How was I to know? And then I, and I, I how can one know, right? <laughs> Nobody to ask. So I concluded it didn't matter. I thought it didn't matter, you know, whether I was actually that servant or channeling that servant. I, I felt that I lived that life. It was so real to me uh-huh. that I became that servant. Hmm. Uh, I became a servant in a household. And, um, uh, and so all the information that came to me was through that perspective. Okay. Um, it really is a dialogue, an interaction between a servant and one of her attendants uh, and the way, you know, Sita dealt with us. And I, I saw so many things that felt so real to me. Sita's love for this, I mean, her love for the animal world and her love for the servants. And, and I got to appear into a higher age with the Trade Yuga. So what did that look like? What was the consciousness at that time? That's really what 
what was so awakening for me is to, mm-hmm. is to see the consciousness of that time. Um, and of course, after I had finished the book, I had this incredible dream, vision dream of, of, of Ram's presence. And I, w- I recognized that the oldest part of me that I can access up until that time, I've actually gone back further now, but was as this love for Ram. And it was like I became part of Sita's love for Ram. The, the love she had for Ram, I also got a piece of that. And I think that that's how it was in being near her, is that one got to be a part of her. You know, one got to be a part of that that aura that she emitted. And for me, it felt like that the story of Sita hadn't really been told because, um, you know, she's she was as she was as much a part of the unfolding of that drama as Ram was. Sure. And I saw that that whole kidnapping was by her design, that she had to go into the entrails of the demon world in order to help Ram, who came from the external. So her work was in the internal part. Mm-hmm. And, and so I explored many aspects of that internal world. And then I saw that the fire, you know, it said that he, she goes through this fire purification. Right. Well, that was the fire for Tapasya, purifying Lanka, all of the, the negative energies that, that had been um, emitted. That wasn't, she didn't need to, 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 to show her purity. That's ridiculous. Right. And then, and then um, scholars, who, who friends of mine, um, scholars said, well, that last part of her banishment was added later on. So then my question was, why did society feel the need to have this Devi be banished? What does that say about Ram? This man of Dharma would banish this holy woman? Right. It never made sense to me. And then people confirmed, yeah, society added that. Why society added that? That's a big question. Sure. Um, but I saw that Sita was by Sita's choice to go into the forest to raise her children uh, so that they could know the forest and know the animal life and know the plant life as, as she did. Hmm. And then there are ancient curses that allowed for that to be. I mean, there are many, many stories. But um, the book, I think, um, really shows the, the balance between Ram and Sita and the love that they brought on the earth, to the earth. Fascinating. So what was your process before we kind of shift gears into, um, and I want to end our conversation on kind of the state of the presentation of Hinduism, but with a book like this, where you are getting very strong visions, what is, what is your process? Do you rely fully on the visions? Are you doing research alongside or incorporating some, you know, other stories that you've heard? Um, what, what was that like? So I, I try not to look at anything when I'm writing initially. Mm-hmm. And then I go back. Um, I mean, I stayed away from reading. I had read Valmiki, Valmiki's Ramayana when I was um, in my 20s. Sure. But I didn't want to go back and look at any of it. Uh, I hadn't read Tulsi Das. I didn't want to look at it. I thought I'll read it after. I don't want to confuse what I'm seeing with anybody else's work. But I did go back to corroborate. I mean, the story of Ravana, mm-hmm. who he was, of this gatekeeper. I had heard that story, but the story didn't resonate with me. Hmm. He's going to be cursed because he wouldn't let a sage into the into see. Uh, 
Narayan? Now doesn't make sense. I knew that there were other things that took place there. And so these are stories, a lot of the stories, they come from the Puranas, but they didn't make sense to me the way they were told. Um, the, the story of Ahelia is a known story. Right. I tell it a different way. It didn't make sense to me. Another thing that happened in the process, when I saw these women sages as sages, not just the wives of sages, right. but of sages in their own right, and had a role to play. And so one of the most touching things was, was retelling that story of a, a sage Gautam and sage Ahelia mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't place the blame on her. <laughs> right. But it's his failing to see the truth, not her failing. Um, and so... You know, I knew a lot of the stories from the Puranas, and I went back to check some of the, the details that I had remembered, um, but then I, I told them in the way that I saw them. Sure, sure. No, that's fantastic. I really enjoyed the book and uh, would encourage people to get it and, and read it. Um, so I want to switch gears, um, and, and we'll probably um, close out our conversation here, and hopefully on a positive note. Uh, But, you know, your two books are great examples of educating the public proactively about Hindu teachings and concepts um, on our own terms and through powerful storytelling. But if you ask the average Hindu American how they feel Hinduism is portrayed in the media as a whole, say, from my favorite, the New York Times, um, although Washington Post and Time magazine seem to be competing for worst coverage, um, all the way to K through 12 uh, textbooks, which is where um, the first introduction is, they probably share with you that it's a steady state of exoticized stereotypes, misunderstanding, and conflation of social and political issues that happen in India on the ground um, with the religious tradition and the philosophy. So I guess my question to you, especially because you are in kind of the world of of media and branding, is first, how did we get here um, in your view? And and what can we do? Uh, You know, so often we're seeing now, I feel at least in in our world, um, Hindu and Hindutva, Hindutva a term that doesn't necessarily even have a single agreed upon meeting is definitely being used to silence a lot of Hindus whenever we are talking about issues. So um, it's, it's a three-part question, I suppose. So how did we get here? What can we do? And how do we specifically address um, this, this new charge of throwing out a word, um, which is essentially being used as the equivalent of say racist um, to silence those of us who are trying to speak out? Well, I think that there's um, been very, very little understanding of Hinduism, Mm -hmm. Uh, very little understanding of the the Dharma traditions, but particularly Hinduism, so misunderstood. It's it's painful, actually. Part Mm -hmm. of it comes from education. Who has been teaching Hinduism in the universities? People who are not Hindu, people who are not practitioners. And, you know, you would never have that for a Christian theologian or a Buddhist teaching of Buddhism. So how can you have people who don't, who are not part of the tradition Mm-hmm. teaching the tradition. So that's that's a big part of the problem. Um, the second is, I think that there's uh, also, I, there's a certain sympathy within the Abrahamic family that looks at the other as the other, and, and actually a little bit of that colonial mentality mm-hmm. um, of, of, of in being inferior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the remnants of, of colonialism are not gone. 
Okay. And I think we have to talk about that openly. Sure. I think the Hindus have been, um, for some reason, um, ashamed to speak, to confront the issues. And so there's been a not an adequate response. Right. The issue of history. History has not been taught. If history is not even taught in India, if you can't openly say there were invasions and occupations, that, if that's not openly said, well, well, well you know, then, then people are not going to know. So it's, it comes both from within India, and India does not good, do a good job in presenting the issues. It's mostly reactive rather than proactive. Right. You have to have a much more proactive um, uh, uh, approach to explaining, explaining the issues. I mean, I'm struggling to write a piece um, that says there's no such thing of Hindu extremism. It doesn't exist. There may be people who happen to be Hindu or extremists. Sure. But Hindu extremism doesn't exist because Hinduism in its essence is a completely inclusive and all-embracing religion. It doesn't say we have the only truth. It doesn't say you have to convert to be saved. It's not doesn't have that exclusive specificity that that the Abrahamic traditions have. People don't understand the distinction. And the Abrahamic traditions, I saw it in the interfaith world, in the in 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 world thought, the Abrahamic worldview has dominated. Right. That's shifting with the rise of Asia. And again, the challenge is how do we do this in a very without an accusatory, without an, that's the challenge mm-hmm. is to is to raise the voice of the Dharma traditions, which is the Eastern tradition, in a way that balances this out, right. uh, in a way that's not viewed as being aggressive mm-hmm. it has to be done though right um, history has to be spoken about really what happened not sugar-coated um, and i think that um we have to disassociate hinduism from the political movement of a majority to reclaim its rightful place and values right but um you know in in, in the media analysis in the west whenever india is addressed, spoken about, you always have somewhere in that article, Hindu fundamentalism, Hindu extremism. Right. And I thought to myself, is that to compensate for Christian fundamentalism and, and <laughs> Islamic fundamentalism? So there has to be a Hindu fundamentalism too? To right, right. feel it's all equal? <laughs> right. I mean, I oftentimes, I chuckle at that because, you know, at the end of the day, Hinduism promotes seeking the truth and that might lead to multiple paths so it's you know fundamentally pluralistic so what does a fundamental pluralist look like there's no such thing right <laughs> again there may be people born into a hindu family who call themselves hindu who happen to be extremists sure that doesn't mean there's no there's no body i mean there is a body of christians who say that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to be condemned to hell. He's, oh, that's, a, that's a very fundamentalist point of view. And right. Hinduism doesn't have that point of view. Right. There's nothing within the tradition. Um, it, it allows for its expression in so many ways. And so there's no equivalence. And, and yet people who are brought up in a certain worldview can't accept that there's no equivalence. So, how, so that's, I think we need to have... A, a number of small think tanks of ha- of how to approach mm-hmm. this sure. problem mm-hmm. because it's um, if it, what's happening if you say something enough I mean this is the trick about advertising people right. believe it and if you associate Hinduism with fu- extremism it, 
in the media again and again and again and again, it sinks into the collective mind. Absolutely. Um, this has been just such a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your story and, um, and really sharing yourself with us. Um, this has been great. It's an ongoing conversation, and, and uh, I know there's a lot of work ahead of us, but I feel very positively that Hinduism has such an important message for the world now uh, in terms of the environmental crisis um, and, and, and awakening the remembrance of, of the living energies of the natural world. So we, we have um, a lot of good things to do together. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.